Church in action. That's what we've been talking about for the past uh, four weeks or so. And let me just stop and say I'm sorry I wasn't able to be here last week. At the very last minute, I got sick. And I appreciate so much Andy stepping up to fill in for me. And I don't appreciate his comment about me being old at all. Uh, I don't think we have a ministry here at our church to old people. We have a ministry to maturing adults. So I think I'm more mature. That's what's going on here. I'm not even the oldest guy on staff anyway. So that'd be Greg Martin. So the reality is uh, all three times, man, just like that. (laughs) No, I actually, this series that we're doing is going to wrap up next week. But uh, this is the sermon that I was supposed to preach last week. And so this morning, um, I want to talk to you about the church in action, how we take action. We want to do a little bit of review. The very first sermon that we talked about uh, of this series, we we looked at what Jesus, how Jesus first described the church. He basically said three things about the church that enable us to take action. One, he said that we have a solid foundation. He said, on this rock, I'll build my church. He was speaking of himself. He said, we have a secure future. He said, the gates of hell, schemes of hell, plans of hell will not prevail against the church. So the The devil cannot ultimately be successful in his attacks on the church. And then he said we have a significant function. He said he would give us the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And whatever we bound on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever we loosed on earth will be loosed in heaven. And so those three things help us take action in the world and kind of know who we're supposed to be and what we're supposed to do. The next week we talked about the fact that we need to submit to the Holy Spirit. That's an action that we see the church taking in the very first um, church in the book of Acts. We see them submitting to the Holy Spirit so they can know the will of God, so they have the power to do the will of God, and so they can stay in the will of God. And then we talked about sharing, that we share the burdens of other people. That's an action that the Lord leads his church to take in every generation. We share burdens. We share our resources with people because they have needs through the church. We share in governing the church. We share the gospel. And this morning, we're going to talk about a different action, a new action, and that is that the church sends. So we're not S-I-N-S, but S-E-N-D-S, sends. We're a sending agent. We actually are involved in sending out people to do what God has called them to do. So if you have your Bible this morning, you can turn to Acts chapter 13. I'm going to read three verses out of Acts 13, verses 1 through 3. And you can stand with me out of reverence for God and for his word. You can look on the screens if you don't have a copy of God's word with you. Just follow along as I read aloud. This is what it says. Now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, a close friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. As they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And then after they had fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them off. Thank you. You can be seated this morning. So we see the church taking action. And the church at Antioch is a church of firsts. Uh, Antioch's the first church that is predominantly Gentile. So it it doesn't have a Jewish background. They wouldn't have known the Old Testament, per se. And honestly, the New Testament's being written right before their very eyes. So, So their church was a church that didn't have a religious background necessarily, certainly not in Judaism. They're also the place that that people were first called Christians, Christians followers of Jesus Christ. And they're the first church that we see doing this particular action, taking this particular action of actually sending people out to do what God has called them to do. So there's some some discoveries that I hope you'll make this morning, four real quick this morning. The first of these is this. I hope that you'll discover that sending is a result of intentional listening. All of us 
No, I think that there's a difference between hearing and listening. You've, you've known what it's like to actually say words to somebody or somebody's saying words to you, but you're not really paying attention to what they're saying. Like, have you ever tried to talk to somebody and they got their cell phone out? And you're like, hey, hey, I'm talking to you. Put that up. Listen to me. <laughs> that happens a lot at my house. <laughs> Guys, we know the difference between hearing and listening, don't we? Right? Men, yes, you should know the difference between hearing and listening, right, in your marriage, Right? It's not just a matter of hearing the words your wife is saying or your kids are saying to you. It's actually listening to discover what it is they're saying, what the content is. So we all know there's a difference between hearing words and listening. The first church I served at, I was a youth pastor there from Flint Baptist Church over outside of Tyler. And I had an old truck, a 55 Ford pickup that I was, would work on in my garage. And I always told the kids, because I lived in the parsonage right next door to the church. I said, if the garage door's up, Feel free to come over and stop and talk. And if I'm working on something, I'd be glad for you to help me <laughs> or whatever. But just feel free to come by. So there was a little girl who lived across the street from the church. And um, she would come over and ride her bike around the parking lot of the church. She saw me out there one day. And she rode up. And she was probably nine years old. And she was talking to me. And I'm just focused working on my truck. And she's talking. And she said something. And I said, oh, that's good. And she goes, no, it's not. And I said, what did you say? She said, I just told you my parents are about to get a divorce. No, that's not good. <laughs> and I'm sorry. I need to stop right here and apologize to you and ask you to forgive me because I was hearing words come out of your mouth, but I wasn't really listening to you. There's a difference between hearing and listening. And the Bible says that they were listening to God's, for God's voice. And so the question is, do you hear God speak to you? Are you listening in your life for God to speak to you? Because God wants to speak. Let me ask you this. Do you believe God still speaks? Do you believe the Holy Spirit still speaks to people today? We just sang about it. <laughs> does your spirit move among us? You all said, he does. You know, Yeah, he does. Absolutely. We know the spirit of God still desires to work among his church and among his people today. But the reality is we don't always hear it. We're not always listening for it. So there's two specific actions they took here that are intentional actions. They were intentionally listening. It says they were worshiping, first of all. You know, as well as I do, you can come to a worship gathering. You can have great music, lights, you know, accompaniment, all of that. You can even be singing the words that, that are on the screen, and you can still not be worshiping. Because for worship to really happen, it has to start in your heart. It has to be internal. It has to be intentional. You, you can come to a worship gathering and never worship. But you can be in your car, in your truck, in your house, anywhere, and be worshiping God. Because worship is anything that causes you to say to God how much he is worth in your life. We just sang it. Is he worthy? Man, you all stood up at the end because you were like saying, yeah, he's worthy. That's awesome. That's what worship is. Worship is declaring to God, you're worth more than anyone and anything in my life. I love you supremely. And if you love God, you can't wait to tell him that. It's just who you are as a, a follower, as a believer. So you, you look forward to opportunities. And yeah, it's a lot more fun to do it corporately like this. It's, it's awesome to hear your voices collectively singing that because it's a little picture of what heaven's going to be like someday when we're gathered around his throne, every tribe, every tongue, every nation, and we're singing those praises to him in fellowship with other people who feel the same way about God we do. So that's what worship really is. Worship is declaring the value of God. It's basically loving God. Just declaring your love for him. And when you do that, that is intentional. You can never do that accidentally. You can sing words, you can be emotional and cry, but if it's not coming from your heart, God doesn't care about it. 
In fact, he might actually hate it, according to Amos, if it's not sincere. So he wants us to worship because worship is that that opportunity that we have. And Luke says here that they were worshiping under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He calls it worshiping. So they were worshiping together at the church in Antioch, and they began to hear. And it also says they were fasting. So fasting is when you typically, we think about food, but it could be other things too. I'm sure for them it was food. When you take something out of your life in order to create more room to be attentive to God. Some people think, well, if you really want God to do something for you, you've got to fast. That's why you'll convince him that you're very serious about it. Sorry, that's not what fasting's for. Or, you know, if you really show God how sincere you are by fasting, that's not what fasting's for. Fasting is to take something out of your life to create more room to pay attention to God more. So when you take food out of your life, every time you're hungry, you'll think, well, I need to eat. Nope, I'm not eating today because I'm fasting. So this is an opportunity for me to give more attention to God right here in this moment because my, my stomach reminds me that I'm not eating today. And it also there simultaneously reminds me that I need to pay more attention to God. But it could be other things that you take out of your life. But fasting is always intentional. You might miss a meal occasionally. That's not fasting. Fasting is when you say, I'm setting something important to me, food or whatever it is, aside to create more room for God in my life. And that's always intentional. And so what the church at Antioch's doing is they're taking two very intentional steps of action here to say we're worshiping the Lord, we're focused on giving God our love and our, our praise because of who he is, and we're, we've taken something out of our life that's important to us to, in order to hear better, to listen more closely. And when you do that, you will hear God speak to you because God wants to speak to his people. And the church at Antioch wasn't paying lip service to that. They were doing what it takes to actually hear God speak. So the question is, are we are we hearing God speak to us? If we aren't regularly doing things to try to listen to God in our lives, then what we'll end up doing is we'll end up doing our version of Christianity and we'll call it God's will. And it might not be. That's what's wrong with the church in America, I think. Is everybody's doing their own thing and calling it God's will. But have you really heard God speak to you about what it is you're supposed to be doing? That's what Christianity is supposed to be like. At Marbury, we have these life-changing questions. If you come to Discover Membership, we'll talk about it there. Sometimes we talk about it in messages, but it's these seven questions that are evaluative, evaluative questions. They're just a way to kind of see how you're doing in your life. And the first of those questions is, how am I listening to God today? How are you listening to God? Have you listened? Well, that's what I came to church for. No, 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 no. You can listen for God at church, certainly, but that's not the only place. That idea that people say, well, I need to go to church to get fed. Well, I hope you're eating somewhere else during the week too, spiritually. I hope you're listening other times during the week. I hope you're listening every day for God to speak to you. Can you tell when God's speaking to you? Do you know his voice? Because he said, my sheep will know my voice. They'll hear me. But when you, if you're having trouble listening to God, having trouble hearing him speak to you, let me just encourage you to do those two things, worship and prayer and fasting. And, and, and forget the music. You can use music if you want to. Just sit before the Lord quietly sometime and begin to tell him what, he, what he's worth to you. Because you'll be so focused on him. In that moment, you may begin to hear him speak to you. As you take something out of your life that's important and you make room for him to speak to you, he will. And what he said to the church at Antioch when they were listening was, send two guys out to do what I've called them to do. He gave them a very specific instruction about a very specific action. So sending is a result of intentionally listening. But second... Sending is a recognition of God's calling. He says, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So when did Saul or Paul and Barnabas receive their call? Did they receive it when they got to the church at Antioch? No. No, God called each of them to do vocational ministry 
before they ever got to the church at Antioch. But the church is part of sending them out to do what God's called them to do. So think about Paul, for example. Paul's on his way to Damascus as a a Pharisee. He's on his way to Damascus to capture Christians and put them in jail. And the Holy Spirit, God just stops him on that road in a blinding light. And he has a conversion experience. He gives his life to Jesus Christ. He realizes for the first time, wow, I'm on the wrong team. Jesus is actually the way, the truth, and the life. And I've been fighting against him. And so the Lord blinds him and sends him into Damascus. For three days, he can't see. And for three days, he's alone in this house. He's praying on this street called Straight. And in Damascus, there's a disciple, another follower of the Lord, that the Lord speaks to because he's listening. His name is Ananias. And he says, Ananias, I want you to go over to Straight Street. There's a guy there who's praying right now, and he's blind. I want you to lay your hands on him. He's going to receive sight, and he's going to know what I've called him to do. And Ananias is like, oh, I know that guy. He kills Christians. I don't want to go over there. He's like, go, I'm sending you over there. So he goes over there, and this is what it says. He said to Paul, but the Lord said to him in Acts 9, go for this man is my chosen instrument to take my name to Gentiles, kings, and Israelites. Our function is significant. That's what, that's what Paul's going to go do. He's going to share the gospel with Gentiles, kings, and Israelites, and I'll show him how much he must suffer for my name. So Paul had a very, three days after his conversion, a very specific call in his life to do something that God called him to do. And then Barnabas, we know Barnabas is not really Barnabas' real name. His real name was Joseph. If you look in Acts 4, it says that Joseph uh, sold a piece of land and brought the money to the church in order to help meet the needs of the other Christians that were there. And because he was so encouraging, the disciples gave him a nickname. They said, we're going to change your name. Your name is going to be Barnabas from now. We're just going to call you Barnabas from now because Barnabas means son of encouragement. So you got to be a pretty encouraging person for someone to call you son of encouragement. And, and that's who he was. And so we see him 23 different times in the book of Acts, he's mentioned. Five times in Paul's letters. He is a person of great significance in the first church. And it's because of the encouragement he offered. When Paul got saved and went back to Jerusalem, everybody was scared to death of him. They were like, no, we don't trust this guy. I mean, he's the guy that was rounding up Christians and putting them in jail because the chief priest gave him authority to do it. And we don't know if he's like doing this to trick us or what. And Barnabas was like, I'll hang out with him. I'll shoulder him. I'll take him under my wing. I'll vouch for him. That's who Barnabas was. In fact, the church at Antioch, whenever they first got started, I mentioned a minute ago that they didn't have a background in Judaism, so they didn't really know the things of God. Well, the church in Jerusalem sent Barnabas to go to them to teach them the things of God, to disciple them. So he sent to, to Antioch to help them. It says in Acts eleven twenty four about Barnabas, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and large numbers of people were added to the Lord. So both these men had a specific call from God that happened before they ever got to the church at Antioch. Do you believe that God still calls people to vocational ministry? He does. We could put that in the song. Does God still? He does. He still he does. He calls people into vocational ministry. Um, when I was called in the ministry at the age of 17, I realized something I never knew. My dad, I went and told my mom and dad about it. And my dad said, well, you know, my, God called me into ministry when I was a teenager. I didn't know that about my dad. My dad was successful as a businessman, as a realtor and a house, home builder, building contractor. Um, he suffered with depression. And, boy, the dominoes just started falling. In my mind, as I thought about that, I thought, well, so you were supposed to go into ministry. You weren't supposed to be a home builder and a realtor. And though you were successful, that's not what God called you to do. And you said no when you were a teenager to God. Wow. 
My good friend that I was at, uh, that I served up at Bellevue Baptist with for a summer, we were both interns up there. We're driving back home at the end of the summer and we stop in Arkansas to uh, spend the night at his grandparents' house. And we're talking to his grandparents about all the things we've done that summer in ministry and all the, way God's, all the ways God's used us. And his grandfather says to him, did you know that your own dad was called to ministry when he was a teenager? My friend Brian was like, no, I didn't know that. He's an engineer, again, very successful. But somewhere along that line, he said no to God. No. One of the things that's been so disheartening for me in ministry is to hear those stories over and over and over again. Adults will say, yeah, God called me to ministry when I was young, but I said no. Or God called me to ministry, but my parents talked me out of it. My Christian parents talked me out of it. That happens a lot. I don't know if they're afraid their kids are going to always live in their basement or they're going to have to always support them or if they just know that ministry is very hard and it's going to be a hard road to live out and they may move way off to somewhere God calls them to and they don't want that. I don't know what it is. But I'd tell you that that's, as a youth pastor, that was a common experience for me. A kid feels like God's calling him into ministry. And yeah, they're 16, they're 17, and you look at a 16 or 17-year-old kid and you go, could they know what God wants them to do for the rest of their life? Yeah, they might. <laughs> because God speaks. And when you're listening, you can hear him speak and you'll understand his call. So my question for you this morning, is: God put a call in your life and you're not answering it? Or you haven't answered it? It's never too late to do what God's called you to do. It says this, it says, after they'd fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them off. So they, they did this practice of laying their hands on them. It's a very biblical thing. You can look all through the Old Testament and New Testament and you see it used in a variety of things. In fact, when Ananias went to see Paul in Damascus, he laid his hands on him so he could regain his sight. So the laying on of hands, you see that often when we ordain deacons or ministers, it's a symbol of authority, it's a symbol of blessing and approval. And so for the church at Antioch to say to Barnabas and Paul, we're going to lay our hands on you, it was their way of saying, we endorse you. We recognize that God has previously called you into ministry, but we now are partnering with you to send you out. So you can go with the blessing of our church. You don't have to go to all the places they went in Acts 13 and 14 and say, well, my name is Paul and this is Barnabas and we're here as missionaries from God. They could say that, but they could also say, but we've been sent here by the church at Antioch. And that matters. We, we've sent a lot of people out over the years, and people are able to say, we're sent by Moberly Baptist Church, or we're sent by Moberly and this other church over here and this other church over here. It, it adds credibility. It, it means somebody's not out here freestyling, doing their own thing. No, they've been approved by a body, a group of people who had a chance to pray over them and talk about what God was going to do in their lives. So when I think about even the last 13 or 14 years, all the different church planners that we've helped send out. If you go out to that mission wall out there and you look at all the different church plants we've been a part of over the last few years, or missionaries, there's many people who've left our church and served internationally or, or here in our country somewhere as missionaries, and we got to lay our hands on them at some point and pray over them and send them out. It's an opportunity for us to say, we believe in what they're doing. We give credence to what they're doing so they can go with the blessing of our church with the, the approval of our church. That's what Paul and Barnabas were able to do. So that's the biblical model. The biblical model is individually calling, but church endorsement or church blessing. So sending is a recognition of God's previous call in someone's life, but sending, thirdly, is a relationship of encouragement and support. So think about what Paul and Barnabas felt like. 
They knew that the church at Antioch wanted them to go because God had spoken that that was supposed to happen, but they were willing to get behind Paul and Barnabas. They were willing to say, yeah, we believe in you guys. So it must have been a great encouragement for them to know that, you know, not just one or two people, but this entire church was saying, we believe this is what God has called you guys to do. And so they're collectively affirming what God has already called these men to do in their lives. So they're going to leave the safety and the security of the fellowship of believers, a little bit of heaven on earth, to go do some really difficult things. If you read in Acts 13 and 14 what they were called to do, they did, they did suffer. They went and did some hard things. They were chased out of some places because they were sharing the gospel. But it's so interesting to me that God calls Paul to go do that, and he calls the most encouraging person he can find to go with him. That's your God. He didn't call him to go do it by himself. He doesn't call us to serve him by ourselves. We get to serve him in the fellowship of a church with people who are around us who will encourage us. And that's our role when we send people out is to continue to encourage people. So when they're out there serving, though they're dealing with difficult things, they can always know there's a group of people back here who are with us, who are praying for us, who have our back, who support what we're doing. So no surprise, they couldn't wait to get back to Antioch to tell them what had happened. Acts 14 records this in verse 26. It says, for when they sailed back to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work they had now completed, after they arrived and gathered the church together, they reported everything God had done with them and that he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles and they spent a considerable time with disciples. Do you think Paul and Barnabas were excited to get back to Antioch? Yeah, have you ever gone on a mission trip and you get done with the mission trip and you can't wait to go home and tell everybody what happened on the mission trip? Who wasn't there? You had that experience? Yeah, because when you've seen God work, you go, I want to share this. I don't want to keep this to myself because you guys prayed for me. You were part of this. Some of you gave financially so I could go do this. So I want to share in that. I want to be part of the fellowship of that. So they couldn't wait to get back because they realized it was a relationship of encouragement and support. You know, when I think about the people that are on that wall out there that are out sharing the gospel, um, they're often very encouraged just by the fact that some of you send them a card every once in a while and say that you're praying for them. Just remind them, or an email or something. And they don't always respond back because they're very busy. Because church planners typically are people that got to set the room up and take it down. They got to lead worship. They got to preach. They got to help with child care. I mean, they do all kinds, they wear all kinds of hats. They got to train leaders. They're sharing the gospel in the community. They're doing all kinds of things. So they don't always have time to respond. But what we hear when, when we get a chance to hear them share is that they really appreciate it. Do you remember a couple months ago, Ron Napier was here on the stage with me, and Ron and his wife Angela are planning a church in San Antonio, Freedom Hill Church. And we've just partnered with them in the last couple of years. But the thing that Ryan said when he stood here was, because uh, I asked him, I said, how have we helped you or what did you gain most from our partnership with you? And he said, do you remember? He said, the fact that total strangers in Longview, Texas, Texas would send us money and partner with us just blew us away. He said, we, we didn't know there were Christians like that in the world. <laughs> Honestly, because you guys didn't know us from anybody. And you decided you'd partner with us? That was so encouraging for us. Well, I can tell you, because my son's one of them, that when they get cards from us and they get prayer grams from us, when they get a gift card that says, hey, take your spouse out for a meal on us or whatever, that that is so encouraging because it reminds them that though they're serving in a hard place, and most church planners are, they're not alone. We're with them. We're standing with them. We're partnering with them. Some of you guys will go out to that wall and you'll take a name of one of those church planners and you'll, as a family, around the meal or whatever, you'll just pray together for a week or two or a month or whatever your commitment is to pray for that particular person, that couple. And that's an encouragement. 
Some of you as connect groups will do that. You'll adopt one of those church planners for a period of time because, because they do face a lot of discouragement. They are called to do a difficult thing, to be in a difficult place often, and they need our support. So in the midst of COVID, our church in the past has been very involved in planning churches, but with COVID, that's kind of slowed down a little bit. But I'm happy to tell you that our missions development committee just recently uh, prayed through and decided to partner with Doug and Dana Hickson. Now, you may remember that name because Doug and his wife planted a Connection Church in Spearfish, South Dakota many years ago, and we partnered with them then. And then they went on to plant a church in Belfouche, South Dakota, and Sturgis, and Sioux Falls, and then Rapid City. And then later, Doug came back a few years ago to Texas to work with the Southern Baptists of Texas to help train church planners. In fact, Ron Napier, who was here from San Antonio, would tell you that Doug has been one of his biggest cheerleaders and helped him the most as he's planted this church in San Antonio. Well, about a year ago, Doug and Dana felt like God was calling them to get back into church planting, and so they, they feel like God's called them to go to Longmont, Colorado, and plant, plant Connection Church Longmont. You can find that on Facebook if you want to follow them and, and encourage them some. Um, and so they're planting a church just outside of Denver, which is a very unchurched area, and we want to help them. So we're going we're gonna to partner with them financially. We're going to pray for them. You're going to hear from Doug from time to time of what their progress is. But we're also going to send people to Longmont. Some of you are going to have an opportunity to go on a mission trip to Longmont, Colorado and do a block party or share the gospel with people or a, a thousand different things that we may end up doing. Because we partner with these folks who are sent by God, called by God, we help them do what God's called them to do. So I want to encourage you with that because, because that's, that's what we're living out this action of sending in our modern culture, in our modern context. The fourth thing this morning is this. Sending is a representation of the heart of God. I love this. Why? It's the why question. Why would anybody be sent? Why would we send anybody out? Why would we send anybody out from Longview, Texas to go serve in a very difficult place where there's not a lot of Christians, where Christianity is not really supported publicly? Why would we do that? Because that's God's heart. That's why. Because nothing in my mind more clearly represents the heart of God for people than the fact that he would send other people to them because he wants them to be in his family. He wants to save them. Do you get that? I mean, that's the heart of God. God is so passionate about people that he's willing to send other people into their lives, even if it means that those people are uncomfortable. He's willing to send people across the yard to their neighbor's house. He's willing to send you across the work environment that you're in, the, the room, the uh, workroom or whatever, to the next desk over. Or he's willing to send you across the sports field where your kids play sports to meet somebody you don't know and try eventually to share the gospel with them. Even if that makes you very uncomfortable, he's okay with you being uncomfortable because that's how much he cares for that person he's trying to reach that's the heart of God God's heart is he sins for you and me Jesus said God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son that whoever believed in him would not perish but have everlasting life God sent Jesus for you if you know Jesus today you didn't find him on your own he sent somebody to you. It could have been a preacher, your parent, or somebody else. He sent somebody to you to share the gospel with you because he wants you that badly in his, in his life to be in a relationship with him. So I love this passage in chapter 6 of John where Jesus talks about that the Father sent him. He says this in John 6, 37. Everyone the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will never cast out. That's a promise right there. He says, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none of those he's given me, but should raise them up on the last day. 
People have this weird view of God, that God's the angry old man who's constantly mad at all of us and can't be pleased. And Jesus is the loving one who begged his father to please let him come to earth so he could save us from our sins. That is so completely unbiblical. Because the truth is, God's heart is the one that sent his son to you and me so that we could be saved. And I'm going to tell you something. If you don't understand how much God values you, how much God loves you, then you'll never know how much he he values and loves people out there. You have to get that down first. You have to understand that the heart of God for you is that he sent his son for you. Because he wants you to be in a relationship with him that lasts forever. That you can't mess up. That's the heart of God. And he's willing to send you into a dis, an uncomfortable or a tough place, a tough situation to share the gospel with somebody else that he cares about. But you'll never know how much he cares for them unless you understand how much he cares for you, how much he wants you, how much he's unwilling that you would perish. And many of you already know the Lord in this room. You've already put your trust in Jesus Christ, but you're still kind of a little uncertain about his love for you because you know who you are. <laughs> You know how you mess up. You know what you do. And you figure, how could God love me? Because he knows more about me than anybody else. Yeah, he does. And he still wants you enough to send Jesus for you. You can't surprise him with your sin. You can't. He knows everything about you. And he still sent Jesus to be your savior because he loves you that much. And he sends more people out in the world all the time to share that message. That's the God that we serve. That's the heart of God. So sending represents the heart of God better than anything else we can do. And so this morning, there's some of you here who have never said yes to Jesus Christ. There's a bunch of you here who have. But some of you go, you know, I really never, I never really believed that. But, but the truth is God wants a relationship with you more than anything else. And he proved it by sending Jesus for you. And his provision of sending Jesus pays for all the penalty of your sins so that you don't now have a barrier between you and God. Once you put your trust in Jesus, that's removed And you can have unfettered access to the God of the universe who made you and knows why you're on the earth. That's the good news this morning. That's for every person. So I'm going to ask you to bow your head and close your eyes this morning. And if you're a believer, I'm going to ask you to pray for the people that are sitting around you. Pray for people who are watching online. We're almost through here, but this is very important. I'm going to ask no one to leave in the next couple of minutes, okay? Because somebody's dealing with God this morning. If you've never asked Christ to come into your life, Jesus said he's the way, the truth, and the life. And no one can come to the Father. No one and come to the Father unless they come through him. Very exclusive. So this morning, if you believe that Jesus is the Savior, that he actually came for you to save you, and you want him to save you this morning, he will do that. That's a promise. We just read it. He will never cast you out when you come to him because his Father sent him to save you. So this morning, if you want salvation, you're ready to turn away from your sin, you don't want that, but you want Jesus more than anything else, I'm going to ask you just to raise your hand. Nobody's looking around but me. Be bold about it. Thank you. Somebody else. Because it's the best decision that you will ever make in your entire life. Just be bold. You guys that raised your hand, I'm going to lead you through what the Bible calls calling on the name of the Lord. There's no specific sinner's prayer in the Bible, but it does say whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So I just want to lead you through a time of calling on the name of the Lord this morning. So he knows your heart. You just say this to God this morning because he knows exactly what's going on inside of you. So you could use my words or use your own, but you could say something like this, Dear God in heaven, I want to be saved right now. I don't want sin anymore. (laughs) I reject it. I I turn away from it. I want you more than anything else. I want to be saved. I want to have a relationship with you that lasts forever in heaven. 
I want to be led by you, God. I want to know you as my father. I want to be adopted into your family today, right now. I'm sorry for my sin. I want you. Would you please save me right now? Thank you for saving me. Now help me to live in a way that points other people to you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.